Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. It's a, it's a pretty fascinating story, just to, the, the, the value of how a clinician's observation and the parents who know their, their children the best, they would notice this and then we find a mechanism and then we find a potential solution. It's just a beautiful uh, demonstration of the, the, the medical and scientific process intertwining and helping solve a big problem. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Krista Amo on the show. He is a medical research scientist with expertise in the synergistic effects of healthy lifestyle, environmental exposures, and genetics on human health and wellness. His research, clinical, and educational network includes leaders in the fields of integrative medicine and lifestyle medicine, and he's also received a PhD in epidemiology from the University of Maryland School of Medicine and is currently an assistant professor with dual appointments in the departments of family and community medicine and epidemiology and public health. He is the perfect person to talk about the pitfalls of nutritional research and where we can and cannot use nutritional research. We do talk about the nuances that specifically impact nutritional research that I think everyone needs to be aware of and understand. We talk about their culinary medicine program and how that started, which I'm pleased to hear has been running for a number of years now. And the way they introduce it early into their clinical career, I think is exactly the way that we should be doing it here in the UK too. Uh, We also talk about sulforaphane, which is a unique phytonutrient that is found in a number of different ingredients. Uh, most notably cruciferous vegetables like Brussels sprouts, but particularly in broccoli sprouts. Now, broccoli sprouts, uh, if you've got my first book, you'll know that I mentioned it back then. And the research looking at the impact of sulforaphane on upregulating your innate detoxification systems, uh, the ability of it to remove environmental pollutants, as well as the impact on inflammation pathways, is absolutely fascinating and as Chris has been doing a lot of research in this for a number of years he was the perfect person to talk about the science of sulforaphane the properties of sulforaphane where we find it um, and the impact on 
virality um, and the host defense response to viruses, uh, in particular influenza. Whether that can be extended to COVID-19 or not, we don't really have the data for that right now. Um, but also on cancer and something that I wasn't aware of, uh, autism spectrum disorder, which is regarded as uh, something that has, uh, well, it's definitely a nuanced topic, but neuroinflammation is one of the defining features that I think needs a bit more attention. And the impact of sulforaphane on that, although it hasn't been borne out in huge clinical trials, is something that definitely warrants a lot more attention. How to incorporate sulforaphane into your diet, as well as the other impacts that it has, that the mechanisms behind introducing different phytonutrients into your diet or supplementation regime um, are quite impactful and um, you know I'm certainly a fan of getting the foundations in order first so food lifestyle uh, sleep exercise etc um, but certainly these are things that are could be the cherry on top and I think if people are interested in enhancement or uh, you know improving lifespan as well as health span then this is something that I, w I would suggest is a good listen to uh, as well. Uh, my primary focus with the doctor's kitchen is to try and get people into good habits. And this is certainly not a, you know, uh, a panacea, um, but certainly something that I think will come into fashion a bit more over the next couple of years uh, as we find out a bit more about how to better our lives. So I really do hope you enjoy this conversation. You can check out the clips on YouTube. Please do check out the show notes at thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash podcasts and you'll find a lot of the links that we discussed on the show there as well. Have a good listen. Chris, thank you so much for joining us uh, via Zoom. It's a pleasure to have you here. My pleasure, Ruby. Enjoy your podcast and look forward to the discussion today. Brilliant, brilliant. Listen, I, I, I've, I've looked through some of your work with coloring medicine. Um, I think it's fabulous. We're going to have a discussion about uh, broccoli and sulforaphane in particular, but I'm sure that will go to a whole bunch of other phytonutrients uh, as, as we talk. Um, but I, I thought perhaps we could kick off by perhaps introducing yourself uh, to the audience over here in the UK, well, largely in the UK. Um, and we could talk about your background and training in epidemiology and your uh, experience in research. Sure. So I am a nutritional epidemiologist by training, and that's a, you know, that alone could be a fascinating podcast topic. The field's done a lot of good. It's also in some ways done uh, some harm and misled us. So, you know, it's, it's a great tool um, and happy to chat about that and uh, have taken that background and now direct the Center for Integrated Medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. So it was the first uh, center in the U.S. in an academic institution. And we've done work in uh, a lot of the, your areas of interest. So certainly nutrition and herbal medicine, uh, but also acupuncture, mind-body modalities, yoga, and really, you know, as the name implies, integrating these sort of, you know, called complementary modalities into conventional care. And just been a fascinating journey. You know, we've been doing research, much of which funded by our National Institutes of Health. We've been uh, doing clinical care, so treating patients uh, with a variety of conditions and educating medical students and healthcare uh, professionals and, and, the, and the public at large. And where I am today, I'm actually at a uh, teaching kitchen at the Institute for Integrative Health, uh, which is a community-based nonprofit in Baltimore. And uh, it's uh, founded by the founder of our university center, Brian Berman, who's uh, a mentor, colleague, and friend. 
And uh, yeah, we've, we've had such a blast with culinary medicine, uh, teaching medical students and other healthcare professionals about nutrition through cooking. Um, and uh, alongside that, one of my big passions, I think we'll touch on today too, is dietary supplements. You know, in the U.S., over half of Americans take a, a dietary supplement. It's, it's across the world very common. And uh, there's so much confusion out there. Uh, but been doing clinical trials on dietary supplements, publishing work on that and educating and, you know, giving consumers and, and clinicians tools to have a, a differentiating eye towards product quality, how to know what to choose, what to take when, and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, look forward. There's a lot of topics we can, we can touch on today and, and look forward. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to double click on the uh, integrative health aspect and how that's a facility within the University of Medicine. But perhaps um, we could dive into the nutrition research uh, stuff. And you, you mentioned right at the top there that, you know, it's, it's done a lot of good, but there's a lot of misinformation. What, what are the biggest issues with nutritional research? I think the biggest challenge is, you know, looking for a silver bullet solution to things or frankly demonizing a single macronutrient or component of the diet. Whereas I think if you look at commonalities in research, it really comes down to, now nothing sexy here, but it's true, eating whole foods, minimally processed, eating real food. But I think if we look at, at some of the, um, I'd say false conclusions we've drawn on dietary fat, for example, you know, if you look at the history that was born largely out of observational studies. So we'd look at those who ate more dietary fat uh, you know, there's correlations with uh, higher lipids and correlations then with heart disease. And out of that was born the diet heart hypothesis. But when we did the randomized controlled trials and we really dove in and adjusted for other factors, we saw that, well, look, dietary fat in of itself is not a causal risk factor for a disease. Uh, we need to look paint with a finer brush. And uh, we've even moved away from thinking saturated fat. I mean, there's certain types of fats, inflammatory oils, hydrogenated oils are harmful for health. Uh, but uh, not all of them, certainly, and even with, with saturated fat. So I think what we've seen, we've seen the same thing uh, with, with red meats. Some of the better science now shows that, well, look, different kinds of red meat have different effects, grass-fed versus grain-fed, and now sugar has become a big enemy. But there's quite a bit of a difference between the sugar that's in blueberries and bundled with you know, polyphenols and the sugar that's in a Coke. So I think we, we've drawn false conclusions in nutritional epi, but it's still a great tool uh, we just need to, to, to look at it in its proper context. Definitely. Yeah. I think there's, you know, context and nuances specifically that impact nutritional research that research that nutritionists need to, uh, sorry, listeners need to understand. Um, and I think what, one of the biggest things is, like you said, demonizing one particular aspect without really truly appreciating that your diet is a collection of multiple different things, even within a singular food, you have an orchestra of different nutrients and I wonder, through the culinary medicine program that you have, how do you get across those nuances to early medical students? Um, and, and how do you teach that in the kitchen? Well, you know, it's funny. I had to smile when you said the orchestra. I use that very example. So a carrot <laughs> is not just beta carotene. And, you know, it's, there's an orchestra of nutrients there. So I did my doctor work on vitamin E. And it's an incredibly important nutrient. Without it, you, you, you won't survive, you know. But it's, we've seen even that different forms of vitamin E, you know, there are eight form, there's four tocopherols, four tocotrienols, that lots of alpha tocopherol will actually deplete the others. So I give that same analogy used with orchestra. You know, if you go to a concert and you got the cellos just jamming out and way, way louder than everything else, it's gonna drown out the other instruments. And that's the way it is with food. There's, there's 
you know, hundreds of different compounds and, and, and foods that work together in synergy. Uh, so I think that's been a big part of the, when it comes to the culinary medicine. So been engaging around, so we get them, you mentioned early on, we get them the first week. So I really commend mm. the uh, University of Maryland School of Medicine for saying, hey, look, this is important because not just for future patient care, but for the wellness, health and wellness of medical students. It's a, you know, it's a stressful time, you know, when you're in medical school. So we get them very early on and we get them thinking about food and nutrients. You know, nutrients are very important. Nutrients can be used therapeutically. Uh, but to think about whole foods and to break down some of these these barriers, I think, of of dogma around is it low fat or low carb? Is it, you know, one of the examples I like to use is we show the commonalities between paleo and, and vegan diets. When done yeah. well, you know, there's more in common, despite all the the bickering like on the blogosphere and, and, and people really getting entrenched. It's like, hey, let's look at the commonalities of eating real whole food. And uh, so it's been fun. And then you get to teach it. So I'm, I'm in, in the kitchen here. Uh, you get to, to teach through something very practical through cooking. So we engage them with fun recipes. We do like zoodles, zucchini noodles, stuff like that, cauliflower rice. Uh, you know, we talk about the difference between wild caught salmon and, you know, uh, farm raised, these types of things. And, we kind of frame it in the context of access too, because we're in Baltimore, uh, Maryland, which is a city that has a lot of you know economic challenges and access challenges. So how can we do this in a way that uh, patients can can access it? Um, not everyone can shop at at uh, Whole Foods or these types of places. So how can we do this in a way that, that's accessible to people? So, but it's a food first uh, philosophy, and then we get into supplements where you know there's certain cases where that is is very helpful to patient care, but that, that's kind of the way we get at it. It's been a lot of fun and, and uh, you know, we're just gonna be getting started up uh, this week for the next next uh, cohort of medical students. That's immense, yeah. I mean, w w there's so many things there that mirror what we're trying to do here in the UK. W we're currently in two medical schools with our program, one of which is compulsory for year five, so we get them quite late. And I think there's almost like a, a sense of skepticism that is sort of ingrained in them at that point. But then we've also been doing a little bit of preliminary work with Imperial College where we deliver lectures to year one. And I think, like you said, getting in there early. So not only are you teaching them about nutrition and the importance to medicine, but you're also instilling self-care um, practices because and I'm sure this is the same in the US over here in the UK. Medics, nurses, anyone that works full time in the healthcare profession are more likely to be obese, more likely to have mental health issues and more likely to die young, quite frankly, as well. So we really need to start taking care of ourselves as well as our patients. Absolutely. I mean, there's an interesting paper that showed that there's quite a bit of interest for incoming medical students. When they come in, they want to learn about nutrition. Uh, as time goes on, you're right, whether it's skepticism or frankly, just not getting much exposure to it to realize that, hey, this is real. It's not, I mean, there's the medications, uh, you know, we, we need them, but we also need the foundation of food and lifestyle. Um, so, and then that tends to wane over time. So I think getting them early in the training, uh, there's published data on this, is key. And there's, in the U.S., there, there's such a, a, a scarcity of nutrition education. It's 25 hours is the requirement, and like less than 30 of U.S. medical schools even meet that. And then get into residency, and there's no requirements at all. And the nice thing is, there's papers in the uh, you know JAMA, the Lancet, uh, that are saying, hey, look, this is something that we need need to resolve, and there, there is a, a groundswell of interest in more nutrition education. We're seeing again, we're in the compulsory. This is the core curriculum we're getting into now. So I think that's the 
that's the key. And, and uh, it's just been fun to see that. It's been fun to see the transition of, of my faculty colleagues and, and you know, clinicians that are out there that say, hey, look, we wanna, we wanna do some uh, clinical cooking classes even, you know, to obesity, yeah. cancer, some of these areas. So it, it's just really re refreshing and it has me very encouraged for the future. Definitely, yeah. And I'd be interested in, in to know what the trajectory for the Integrative Center was. Uh, was it, it, did it start with nutrition and then broaden to all these other wider applications of uh, interventions, such as, like you said, uh, yoga, meditation, or even acupuncture? Is that the way in that it, it went, or, or were there other sort of interests prior to that? The way in is a really, really great question. So it was founded in 1991, so it's been, been around for a while. Again, my, you know, wow. Dr. Brian Berman started it. It actually started predominantly with acupuncture. So there's this big need, there's still a big need when it comes to chronic pain and non-pharmacological treatments for that. Uh, but it started with, with acupuncture. And this also kind of followed the trajectory of, you know, one of the National Institutes of Health, you know, a center being, uh, you know, dedicated to, to these, these modalities. So then got into things like herbal medicine, uh, you know, meditative therapies. You know, my, my background was in nutrition. I've been with the center for about 10 years now. So I, 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 I brought a big focus of that to our work. But the way in it is key. And I think, you know, you, you sort of, uh, it sounds very, uh, you know, like warlike, but it's not. But a Trojan horse, really, if you can reach people with things like, okay, you know, nutrition's pretty conventional. Uh, stress, sleep, these kinds of things, stress management. And then you say, hey, by the way, there are these other tools too. So we even had really interesting stories too over the years. Uh, there was a real skeptic uh, as far as acupuncture went and he had chronic back pain and Dr. Berman said, hey, we want to look into uh, acupuncture. And he go, and this is a very well accomplished researcher written textbooks and so on. he said, my back pain is cured. You know, I want to know more about this. And he became <laughs> yeah. one of our big uh, you know, collaborators over the years. And same thing with nutrition and they look at the data they look at the data, we'll talk about sulforaphane today and, and, and say that hmm. these, these are powerful uh, uh, you know, treatments that can help us with our patients. So that's kind of the way in uh, that, we, that we've seen. We've seen heard stories all across the world with that too. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I totally agree with that Trojan horse analogy. I think first you've got to go with something conventional, something that everyone can sort of agree on. And then you kind of introduce uh, other aspects that might be a little bit fringe. And that goes the same with patients as well. I mean, I'm hardly going to start talking about mindfulness meditation with some of my patients who are not privy to that sort of knowledge yet. But at the start, I'm definitely going to be talking about food and, and, and how that can have an impact first. Um, Let's let's talk a bit about sulforaphane. Actually, before we do that, uh, I wanted to get your opinion on uh, reference ranges uh, for micronutrients. As your supplement person, someone who's done a lot of research in this as well and, and personal study, um, how how are they created, and why might that not be the most uh, useful tool when it comes to the person sitting in front of you in clinic or the individual? Oh man, that's an incredibly important question. It gets even ties into the food labels when they see this. I mean, first of all, it's incredibly variable. You know, our nutrient needs, yours and mine are going to likely be different. And you get people at different uh, stages of life, people with different health status, people with different activity levels, all these things impact even the size of a person and impacts that. So you know, when you look at the reference ranges in particular, those are largely based on means and medians out of populations that aren't necessarily, it's not for optimal health. You know, there's a lot of times people who tend to be kind of sick, actually, who, who produce these. And our, uh, you know, the, the RDAs are based on preventing nutrient deficiency diseases. 
So I don't know about you, but my goal was to more than just not have scurvy. You know, I want to, I want to thrive. <laughs> and I, I think a lot of these are, we don't really know what a lot of these optimal thresholds are. So when we look at, at the referent values, I mean, vitamin D is one where there's a, quite a bit of research has gone into, but when we look at those levels, those aren't necessarily what we want to get to, to prevent chronic disease, uh, to thrive and, and, and reach optimal health. And then you get the, the complicated factor too of what's in the blood. So let's say we get a blood draw, we look at, at uh, plasma or serum B12, for example. Well, there's so much more to it than that. You gotta look at, at the metabolites really. So things like methylmonic acid, homocysteine or magnesium. By the time your magnesium gets low in the serum, you've got some problems. So we'll look at things like mm. red blood cell magnesium sometimes to sort of the integrative and functional medicine approach. But uh, I think there can be a false sense of security where someone goes and says, I look, my B12 levels were normal. They're in the normal range, but they're low in energy. They're maybe not getting very much B12 in the diet. You know, things aren't, things are suggestive of B12 deficiency or whatever else it might be. So that's a, a really fascinating area where we need, we need more research. We're getting there a little bit of vitamin D, but we need more research with other things. Yeah, I think the public health bodies are sort of in a rock and a hard place when it comes to reference ranges, because I think to your point, you know, they're trying to prevent deficiency. But I think on a personal level, and I think certainly my patients would all agree that they don't just want to be out of the woods when it comes to disease, they actually want to be thriving as energy, uh, as energetic as possible, and, and you know, to, to, to really thrive in optimal health. Um, and this brings us nicely to the topic of sulforaphane. So th this is something uh, I've known about for a number of years now. It came on my radar probably about four or five years ago when I came across some studies looking at the environmental pollutants um, and the just the impact on the inflammation pathways uh, through broccoli um, and broccoli sprouts and everything. What? When did you first come across the impact of sulforaphane? And, and perhaps we could define exactly what we mean by sulforaphane sure. as well. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's funny because uh, when it comes to nutrition, you hate to play favorites with your favorite nutrient. But if there was one favorite micronutrient for me, it'd probably be sulforaphane. It's just incredibly powerful. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of work with vitamin E, D, carotenoids and so on, uh, other, you know, flavonoids. But, but sulforaphane, I think, has a, a unique evidence base behind it. So what it is, it's, it's an isothiocyanate, which um, uh, we'll talk about some of the science behind it. But these are uh, potent um, activators of the NRF2 pathway, which we can, we can talk about, and inhibitors of NF-kappa B. So we'll get more into the science of that, but in, in essence, it, it uh, turns on a bunch of anti-inflammatory and antioxidant genes and uh, turns off you know, many of the inflammatory pathways. But where it, it, it comes from, uh, the raw materials for it are called glucosinolates, and this is in cruciferous vegetables in, in varying amounts. So things like broccoli or broccoli sprouts actually have, have quite a bit more than the, the mature broccoli. Uh, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, uh, moringa, which is one of my, my favorites, to, uh, you know, these, these hot superfoods, which is really interesting. Um, so you get the glucosinolate in that. But then you need uh, myrosinase, which also tends to be in these uh, cruciferous vegetables, again, in varying amounts. And it converts the glucosinolate Whichever, whichever it might be, glucoraphanin and broccoli, glucomeringan and, and moringa uh, into the isothiocyanate, the, probably the best study of which is, is sulforaphane. And we can talk about a lot of the, the nitty gritty details, but how I got into it actually is, I, so we're in Baltimore and a lot of the seminal work uh, was done uh, with our, our friends across town at, at uh, Johns Hopkins University, uh, Paul Talley, 
uh, Jed Fahey, uh, Tom Kensler, now from Hopkins, Brian Kornblatt at, at Nutrimax Laboratories, who trained at Hopkins. You know, they did a lot of this really seminal work. And, you know, I'm a health and nutrition enthusiast myself. So I started working it into my own my own life uh, uh, before I started studying it. So that's the sort of short history. <laughs> yeah. So so w- w- for people who are completely new to the subject, so furofame being an anti-inflammatory, there's a number of different key pathways that it works on. The, one, the two that you mentioned are NRF2 and NF-kappa-B. Um, why... Uh, is this so unique and where do and, and how what was the dose that we're actually talking about when we when we talk about these different types of ingredients so the um it depends on the, the this is dosing can be a little bit tough with this because it varies so much from plant to plant unless you're talking about a supplement or uh an extract of some sort um but uh so that that varies quite a bit and it varies based on what the what we're looking at if we're looking at a you know a patient with autism for example and the size of that patient or, or cancer, some of these other, other fascinating um, areas that we can uh, discuss uh, today. Um, but I, I think what makes it so unique is just the multiple mechanisms and the fact that it's an indirect antioxidant. So this, your, your, your viewers and listeners may find this of interest. You have direct antioxidants like vitamin C, uh, vitamin E um, that uh, have you know, really important properties. I spent uh, five years studying vitamin E. It, it, it's, it's important. But then you get, the issue with some of those is that you can get actually pro-oxidant where you can throw things out of balance when something is coming in with, with direct antioxidant uh, capacity. What's interesting with um, compounds like uh, sulforaphane is they, they are indirect, so they turn on these genes, uh, you know, that, that have, you know, those that express glutathione, for example, um, that have this this uh, indirect effect that indirect sounds less powerful, but it's actually better, you know, um, uh, because it's more controlled. You don't run into that pro-oxidant, you know, uh, effect that you may get if you take too much vitamin C or or whatever else the case may be. And just the variety of mechanisms. We'll talk a little about heat shock proteins today, too, which is really fascinating on a lot of levels. So it's just it's 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 a uh, it's a nutrient that seems to have so many health promoting properties. I think why, why it sort of elevates in my status above a lot of the others. Yeah, that's super interesting. And and do they have any sort of um, similarities with other agents that we might have heard of already, like resveratrol from uh, grapes and dry peanuts and stuff like that, or is it a different indirect mechanism? Because uh, and perhaps we could talk about like hormesis and and the differences between those. Yeah, well, you know, I know you had David Sinclair on uh, recently. I think um, I think resveratrol is fascinating and. Uh, it, it works through, there are some similarities with this. You look at, at curcumin, for example, as an element, that's an NF-kappa B, uh, in, you know, inhibitor to a lot of, a lot of um, uh, phytonutrients are. Um, there are, are, are different pathways. Um, you know, some of those are more on the uh, NAD uh, pathway. Um, when you look at uh, sirtuins and so on with resveratrol. So that's, what, again, why it's great to get a lot of these different things in one's diet or supplement uh, regimen. So the, I'd say some of the overlap would probably be in the, the NF-kappa uh, B. The NRF2, of all of the um, uh, natural compounds uh, that have been looked at, uh, sulforaphane is, is, is probably the, the um, strongest at activating that, that, that pathway. They've, they've done interesting comparisons. Now, curcumin does it somewhat. Uh, some other, other uh, compounds do too, but um, uh, sulforaphane seems to be uh, the, the most powerful in that respect. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And 
let's talk a bit about the applications of this. So from, from some of the research that you sent over to myself and uh, some uh, that I've seen in the past. So furifane, like you said, appears to have uh, multimodal effects across different uh, conditions or disease states, whether it be increasing detoxification pathways to remove environmental pollutants, improving host cell response when it comes to uh, the, the uh, response to viruses. Um, and one that I haven't come across before, which is the impact on autism spectrum disorder. Um, why don't we why don't we start off with the viral one? Because that's uh, as we're in a pandemic at the moment, it's probably the most uh, the, the most applicable. That's on everybody's mind these days. So one of the ways that sulforaphane increases the um, you know, immune defense against viruses and other, other uh, pathogens is uh, natural killer cells. So it increases the, you know, that innate immune response with natural killer cells. As such, uh, we've seen, there's actually quite potent antibacterial antibiotic uh, uh, effects when it, uh, with H. pylori, it's sort of selective. So there's been a lot of work, uh, you know, again, a lot of it at Hopkins uh, with, with H. pylori. But if we look at viral, because that, again, that's on everyone's minds nowadays, antiviral properties. Um, yeah, it's been shown to, uh, you know, uh, with H1N1 flu, you know, have activity against that, against uh, HIV uh, even. So it's, it's shown to have some pretty potent uh, antiviral properties, again, owed uh, largely to the natural killer cell, but also heat shock protein, NRF2 uh, activation, that itself uh, has been shown to increase the immune response. Um, and then you, you, know, you, you combine this with other actives like maitake mushroom, well, one, of, one of my favorites too. You, know, you come in there with a multi-pronged approach that can really uh, enhance our immunity, which is it's really never been more important than it is now. It's important all the time uh, because even cancer and things like that, these are really essentially immune dysregulation. We're not attacking the cancer cells. The immune system's not doing its job. But uh, again, and now it's on everyone's mind even more prominently. Yeah. So so one of the impacts of the sulforaphane is to heighten the innate immune response by increasing natural killer cell activity. Are there other mechanisms by which it increases the host cell response to viruses? And I, I should make it clear to the listener, we're probably not talking about COVID-19 at, at this point, but this has certainly been shown in vitro, to my knowledge, um, with, with other influenza viruses. Or different influenza viruses. Well, most definitely, I think. I think one of the things that that uh, you know, when we talk about COVID, and obviously the, the the big problem is when there's a cytokine storm. So I think when when something has the impact that sulforaphane does on that RNF two pathway and the you know, controlling the expression of a lot of these these uh, uh, inflammatory genes, you know, that we're going to have a more appropriate immune response where there's not going to be, you know, uh, an overproduction of, of cytokines that can lead to, to problems. And of course, this is not so simple. I know in the you know, very early stages of, of um, uh, uh, COVID, everyone was talking about, was elderberry increasing cytokines? Is it going to cause cytokine storm? No, it's, it's not that simple. But um, with sulforaphane, again, since it's controlling the expression of those genes, um, uh, it, it, it will help attenuate, you know, the overinflammatory response that, that that is really the the, the big problem when it comes to uh, COVID and other infections like that. 
Yeah, it's it's almost like food has this chameleon-like response. I remember speaking to Dr. Lee about uh, different types of food, and it's not as if just because one food appears to have a pro-angiogenic effect that it's going to have an angiogenic effect that's going to increase tumor burden in everyone. Because food has this like uh, incredible response that you know adapts to the surroundings, so it, it doesn't have a binary effect like a pharmaceutical would. Right. Right. That's a broad, there's a broad bunch of, you know, pharmaceuticals are very targeted to often to single pathways. And of course the, there's downstream effects that were, you know, that where other things come in, but yeah, food has much broader uh, effects across the board. And yeah. Where things occur, where is the inflammation occurring? You know, I'm interested in autophagy. Where is that occurring? And, and, and some of these types of things. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating, again, orchestra of activity. Yeah, definitely. And so, so if you're a friend, has that been used at all in um, human clinical trials that to demonstrate sort of an antiviral impact? Yeah, well, it's been used uh, in clinical trials for a lot of other things. Um, so cancer, uh, again, cancer, you know, I don't even know where, where we start this, but if we look at, let's, let's actually first start the detoxification. So that's one of the things that got me into this. So I, you know, I've, I've um, uh, looked at my genetic, you know, SNPs. I've done a 23andMe test and run through a bunch of, of uh, filters and I don't detoxify very well. You know, I've got some methylation issues and so on. And that manifested with something long before I knew about SNPs that if I was out, uh, you know, we're on a main road here. If I was out in traffic or if I was traveling or if I was around cigarette smoke or mold, I had a real hard time bouncing back with that. Um, so the phase two detoxification pathway that sulforaphane has been shown in human studies to help dramatically reduce benzene, for example. So benzene is a carcinogen that we find in vehicle exhaust and, and uh, you know, uh, other things like that. Acrolein, which you might have heard about that one, uh, similar. Um, that also can be produced in food, you know, when we heat things too much and so on. Um, the sulforaphane has been shown to detoxify that. That's why I started taking uh, Abmacol, which is the um, uh, sulforaphane supporting product that has the most clinical trials. And I found myself feeling quite a bit better. You know, I'd walk in, walk, walk in the streets of Baltimore, walk in the office, and I wouldn't have this, this sort of sluggish feeling anymore. But they've shown in, in clinical studies that it helps get, get rid of those carcinogens. So how does that then, so let's look at how that would play an effect in cancer. So we already talked about how sulforaphane um, you know, increases the NRF2 activity, decreases NF-kappa B, um, and collectively from getting rid of those carcinogens that we all get exposed to, you know, we all breathe the air, there's no way around it uh, that has these, these carcinogens. We, you know, upregulate the expression of a bunch of these genes, including, you know, histone deacetylase, uh, you know, uh, that inhibiting that can help with certain cancers. P53 protects that. So you get this sort of multimodal, um, uh, approach that's happening there. So for something that the cancer is as complex as that, uh, we start to see that, um, you know, the, like in human studies with prostate, with PSA, lower PSA levels, it reaches breast cancer, it reaches the breast tissue uh, in breast cancer patients. There's a lot, a lot there. There's cardiovascular disease studies and, and autism is probably the one that, that has piqued my interest the most because we've just seen these, it's such a challenging condition. And uh, there's so much sort of, I'd say almost, uh, predatory, you know, uh, marketing and that goes on with a lot of these parents who are desperate because it's almost as if they've lost their, their, their ability to communicate and connect with their child. And the clinical studies uh, with autism are just are, are fascinating to me. And a lot of that we believe comes down to neural inflammation and heat shock response. And I can talk about that if you like. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about heat shock proteins because you mentioned that a couple of times now. I've only talked to, I've only sort of considered heat shock proteins in the literal sense of uh, when you go to the sauna and you upregulate your HSPs, and that appears to have some association with lower rates of dementia, lower rates of cardiovascular disease amongst men. Uh, who have used the sauna I think it was a Finnish study um, as part of like you know cultural uh, reasons um, and, I, and I think it's fascinating the mechanisms behind that H- how does sulforaphane that we get from broccoli sprouts and all the other ingredients that you mentioned how does that interact with the HSP uh, mechanisms yeah it's really fascinating so the heat shock uh, protein response for, for your viewers that may not know essentially it helps protect against uh, protein misfolding that occurs when there's Surprise, surprise, heat. That's one of them. That's where the name comes from. But other stressors, too. And uh, these provide some resilience uh, to stress. So, it's a, again, it's this hormesis you mentioned before, too. You know, that which doesn't kill you tends to make you stronger. So you get these, these bursts of whether it's heat. Um, you, you know, I, I'm a big sauna fan myself. And, and uh, not just because of the data, it tends to make me feel good. I think a lot of people feel the same yeah. way. But <laughs> there are ways to induce that that don't uh, require that. So let's take a look at, at uh, autism, for example. So um, that's uh, a condition that, you know, leading uh, clinicians like Andrew Zimmerman um, in Massachusetts, who had been treating autism patients for decades, uh, was involved in a recent biomarker uh, study, uh, showed, you know, they knew that, hey, when, when uh, patients would get a fever, the parents reported that they, their symptoms were gone. So they would be less agitated, less irritable. They'd communicate more effectively. They'd have fewer tics. And this is pretty consistent you know, over, over many years and many clinicians. But good luck getting a, you know, a child with autism to go into a sauna. It, it, it's, it, it's not real accessible. So many clinicians were looking at ways, how can we safely induce the heat shock response? Um, and uh, sulforaphane was shown to do that. And uh, there was a clinical research uh, portfolio that was launched looking at uh, sulforaphane supporting supplements, uh, you know, either broccoli sprout uh, extract and shown really impressive um, changes in behaviors. So, again, less irritable, better uh, communication and even getting into the biomarkers. You know, we always want to know what's the mechanism. Is there a, a mechanism? And uh, where increased you know, expression of so these antioxidant genes um, and uh, lower neural inflammation and you know, these heat shock proteins. So that's kind of how it works. I mean, it's, it's a pretty fascinating story, just to, the, the, the value of how a clinician's observation and the parents who know their, their children the best, that they would notice this and then we find a mechanism and then we find a potential solution. It's just a beautiful uh, demonstration of the, the the medical and scientific process intertwining and helping solve a big problem. Yeah, I mean, that, that's fa- I, the fact that I haven't heard about that before is astounding. I mean, it sounds like it should be on everyone's sort of playbook when it comes to primary care, because I'm, I'm trained as a primary physician. I obviously see uh, parents of children with ASD, and I think it, you know it's one of these issues that is uh, increasing in its prevalence. W- what I'm fascinated to know about is how long do with that particular study how many people were used and is it significant enough of an effect and how many more studies do you think it will require to to almost become you know gold standard to to have this supplemental regime and how do you personalize that as well right well it's uh fairly typical of the scientific process there have been a number of uh, of studies of this now 
ranging there. The studies are all relatively small, um, but the effect size has been quite strong. So the studies range anywhere from 10 to I believe 50 or so uh, uh, kids um, with this. And they've been pretty uh, consistent in, in finding, um, you know, both the clinical improvements. There's an ABC checklist. There's a, a uh, social um, uh, sort of expressiveness. Um, and then looking at these, these um, mechanisms that are underlying too with the biomarker. So the biomarker study was, was published, I believe, in one of the nature journals, Nature Scientific Reports, um, uh, with uh, you know, Dr. Zimmerman, Dr. Fay, who I mentioned before. Um, that was a relatively small study um, uh, that was really focused on the biomarkers, but there's some uh, data that are forthcoming from that. They're going to look also at the, at the symptoms. So Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, as an epidemiologist, uh, how, how many more trials or how big, because those are quite small numbers, just to put into context for the listener, how big a number do we need to, you know, start thinking about when it comes to, okay, we're going to have a supplemental regime with patients within reason across the board when it comes to treating uh, things like ASD and other uh, conditions that are associated with neuroinflammation? Sure. Well, I promise I won't get too nerdy here for your, uh, your, your, your viewers, but, you know, the, the statistical significance comes down both to the sample size and the effect size. So if you see a really strong effect size in a small sample, that is, uh, in a lot of ways, probably more encouraging than you see this tiny effect size. But since you have 100,000 patients, and we've seen this a fair amount in the, the, the uh, epi literature that will show that there's a reduced risk of cancer that was statistically significant. But it was like a, a, a 2% reduction, but there were 500,000 participants, so it's statistically significant versus something that might have, like I, I mentioned, 10 uh, patients. You have to have a big effect to see statistical significance there. So what I would like to see, I mean, there are you know, bigger studies that, that are underway. Now you like to see replication in you know, different types of, because not everyone's the same. There's different types of exposures, different types of populations across different uh, age spectrums. I think right now that the data for um, sulforaphane for autism uh, for ASD is pretty compelling, you know, based on what we've got, because given in the grand landscape with, with very few, uh, no serious side effects, that I feel like we're, we're kind of there. How to get that on, I think the, the more studies that go out, the more nuanced the research question gets, the more information we have. Um, but, uh, you know, I think waiting for the randomized double blind placebo control multi-site studies with it just those take so long to do and they're hard to get funded um that uh you know at this stage uh, you know i'm i i would confidently we have we've got a clinical practice to say this is something that people should consider yeah well i mean coming from an epidemiologist that's uh that's quite reassuring and i i think the listeners will definitely appreciate the little snippet of epidemiology there to just contextualize exactly what we're talking about because like you said you know with a smaller amount of people you really have to see something quite dramatic um for it to be statistically significant um the other question kind of pertains to that i guess is when it comes to uh, a determined anti-cancer effect, yes, we can have the mechanistic studies. Yes, we can see things in vitro. Um, how long are we going to... Let, let's say we had a whole cohort of people who are more at risk of breast cancer for a number of different reasons or, or other types of cancer. How long would you have to follow those people up for taking a supplement, something like sulforaphane, to actually demonstrate whether this is going to have a positive effect or not? 
This is the big challenge uh, is pre cancer prevention research, uh, especially interventional cancer prevention research, because these things can take now, these cancers could take decades, you know, to, to, to manifest when there's been, you know, some of these uh, predispositions, whether it's genetic, you know, the BRCA1 and 2 type of variants or poor lifestyle. This is the, the challenge. If you look at most of the cancer prevention studies, they've been um, uh, either in animal models or they've been epidemiological studies that look retrospectively at risk but it can take a long time. I mean, there, there have not been a whole lot of, for anything, this is certainly for medications as well as for exposures. It's tough if you just get a cohort of healthy people, you're gonna have to follow them for decades, you know, if, if you're an intervention. So that would be really costly to do. So I, I think for a lot of these types of things, we look at a combination of, you know, we work with the samples that are there. We look at mechanisms, you know, does it make sense? So let's take a look at sulforaphane. It's a potent HDAC inhibitor. We know a lot of the medications that are used to treat cancers are HDAC inhibitors. So we look at a sort of a resonance in terms of mechanisms and those, those types of things. So, but, but cancer prevention, the other chronic disease prevention, it's tough to do interventional prevention studies because they're so expensive and it takes so long you know, for the events to develop, even for those that are at risk. Yeah, absolutely. I was listening to a podcast actually quite recently about just the um, lack of success in cancer research and cancer treatment and really where we need to be focusing a lot of our monetary resources is prevention as much as treatment because, you know, slash burning, using chemicals, etc. You know, as that's the standard of care and it definitely needs to be, we really need to start putting more effort into diet lifestyle but also entertaining other means like you know uh, supplementation uh, as, as i'm you know finding out a little bit more about um we had a, a colleague of mine who's an oncologist uh talking about a concoction that they're making with um i believe broccoli extract is definitely in there uh, but also mushrooms which you mentioned a bit earlier and a few other things like camel tea looking at research that um uh, demonstrated some impact on covid19 in cells giving it to patients in a double blind randomized control trial if there was a selection of ingredients that you could pick out and i'm not trying to suggest that you know this is definitely going to be a treatment for covid or anything that can improve it but what kind of things would you be telling patients or are you telling patients in order to keep healthy on top of the foundation being good sleep habits good nutritional habits and good exercise habits well the foundation i think is the key all those things you just mentioned there um yeah i'd love to hear more about that that uh, concoction that's coming up because i think the the combination of uh, sulforaphane and mushrooms, particularly mitaki mushroom, that's uh, in the abnacolexia strength that my, we're, we're doing a, a clinical trial at my center on that uh, is, is fascinating. So I worked with the Institute for Functional Medicine um, and we developed a list of nutrients. Uh, I can provide the link uh, for your nutraceuticals that can be helpful for this. And uh, you know we've talked about some of them, sulforaphane, mitaki mushroom, um, uh, quercetin, Another one that's on the list uh, for sure. That's a, another one. You know, vitamin C, vitamin D, a lot of the data, and we've seen those with uh, uh, the mortality and vitamin D levels are inversely associated. So keep the vitamin D levels up. Um, <clears throat> you know, elderberry is another one, uh, curcumin, melatonin. So there's a bunch of these different nutraceuticals that um, we think can be helpful in uh in in this in this uh process just again to to give ourselves that boost in innate immunity 
um, so that we're, we can fight off the uh, pathogens that we come across. And then, you know, to manage our inflammatory response with some of the more anti-inflammatory um, uh, components. So um, I would suggest checking out that list. It's, it was very thoughtfully conceived and, and uh, a lot of good evidence behind it. Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll definitely link to that for sure if you send it over. Uh, my uh, my colleague who I was just talking about, he was also one of the lead authors on the POMI-T trial that observed uh, patients with slow-growing prostate cancer being given in a, a placebo-controlled trial um, a concoction of broccoli, pomegranate, and a few other things like green tea, I think. And a similar sort of list has gone in. And I think those things that you just mentioned, quercetin, um, uh, vitamin E, and, and a couple of other, sorry, melatonin, and a couple of others might be in that concoction as well but it's, it's still a trial that's undergoing right now uh, but it's interesting because it's in a cohort of COVID-19 patients so oh, that's fascinating yeah, yeah, fascinating. To, yeah send me the link I'd love to take a look at it and I mean, you mentioned pomegranates another great one too with the elagic acid and there's just I mean I think this is the 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 benefit of getting a variety of these different um, uh, plant you know the phytonutrients into our our diets because they they all operate on slightly different mechanisms and there's a lot of great synergies you know, that are between them, um, you know, uh, sulforaphane mitochondria is just one, but yeah, you look at getting curcumin into the mix, potentially pomegranate, uh, a lot of these other polyphenols, dark, you know, chocolate, cocoa polyphenols, EGCG. I mean, there's, there's a lot there. And, and I think this is, uh, the value of getting, um, a bunch of these into our diets. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I know you've done a lecture that's available online about uh, healthy aging, where you give recommendations about maintaining protein intake, but also looking at magnesium, vitamin D3. I'd love to know what's in your concoction. Uh, not to suggest that, you know, everyone should be taking exactly the same one. Everyone's in an individual, you know, your needs are different to mine, but uh, I'd love to know, uh, you know, what's in your armory right now. I already write rails down. It's going to go right for a long list. <laughs> no, it's, you know, it's funny. What motivated me to get into this subject was uh, my uh, grandfather lived to be almost 101, but he was lifting weights and uh, up into his upper 90s playing tennis and I got fascinated by, uh, you know, longevity and thriving into, into older age. And I was actually trained on epidemiology of aging fellowship from the National Institute of Aging here in the United States. And all this about compression of morbidity so that we could thrive, not just to live to be, you, know, you look at some of the radical life extensionists, uh, they say they want to be 180 and Dave Asprey and some of these fights, and who knows, maybe we get there. But I think the main thing is to uh, not be sick. You know, so I, there's a lot that we can do with that. I mean, I think the foundations that you mentioned before is sleep, minimizing environmental uh, uh, toxins, physical activity, maintaining lean body mass, all the foundational stuff. But I think you get into a lot of the things. I mean, again, I think sulforaphane uh, for the NRF2 pathway. I think you get into some of the NAD, uh, uh, you know, the sirtuins. I mean, I, I find that fascinating. Um, so if you look at, you know, NAD, uh, uh, resveratrol, a lot of these types of things I think are fascinating. Um, you know, I think autophagy. So I think that, uh, I didn't talk about this in that, in that talk, I, I think that you found, but I think uh, intermittent fasting, you know, time-restricted eating is really important. I think hot and cold exposure, you know, and I'm doing all these things too. And I got to or a ring, I quantify uh, all this, this type of stuff too. Oh, but me I too. Yeah, I there got you one go. as well. <laughs> there you, high five. <laughs> but it's, uh, there's, there's a lot there. And I, you know, I think, I think there's a, we're going to see a whole new cohort of people who are living very healthy. And we see it now in, in uh, a lot of parts of the world where people tend to live long. I think social connection and purpose are very big with this too. 
Um, so these are some of the things, those are just some of the things that, that I do. You know, I think there's the, the, you know, minimizing blue light exposure to help us get better sleep, a lot of these types of things. But I think molecularly, there's a lot, there's a lot there. I think when you look at the sirtuins and NAD, NRF2, keeping inflammation low, keeping blood sugar regulated. So things like berberine, you know, can help with that. Just, you know, eating a good diet, of course, but but there's there's a lot there. I love it. I mean, it's you know we're really blessed to be in professions where we get to it's our job and we get to learn and apply it to ourselves. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a bit of self experimentation going on as well with myself. I mean, I, I certainly see patients of the future being privy to a number of different wearables, of which you know an aura ring is one, but. Uh, continuous glucose monitoring, uh, nutrigenomic testing um, to to make sure that we're actually putting together modifiable genetic SNPs that we can actually have some impact on, whether it be with a, a B12 supplement or, or otherwise. Um, because right now, we're kind of playing a bit of a guessing game. Um, I mean, I primarily work in emergency medicine, so a lot of what we do is diagnosis and we have a lot of investigations. But in the primary care sphere, we're quite limited uh, unless we go in, you know, into functional medicine, which is something that us in the UK are quite behind on. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of entertaining all these different uh, um, modes of, of, of intervention, whether it be with food and, and otherwise. Well, you know, you raised, raised an interesting, fascinating subject of, of nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics. So we've, our center's done some work with that. We looked at uh, genetic associations of carotenoids. Um, lycopene and alpha carotene published a couple papers on that. I think there's a tremendous amount of potential there. There's, you know, more and more labs are coming out with, with good, good assessments. I think we look at clusters of SNPs. So we look at clusters of the variants because any single variant, we see this a fair amount with, you know, the MTHFR variants. There's actually many variants on MTHFR. The C677T is the one that probably has the strongest impact on human health. But you, you know, a lot of times you see people say, oh, I have, an M- I have MTHFR. Well, we all have the gene, but you know, they'll have the variant and then they take high levels of methylfolate, which can be helpful, but there's a bigger picture there. And I think the better technologies that I've seen will actually look at clusters of the SNPs and say, look, you've got these different uh, SNPs. You may want to consider supplementation or diet or being more aware of detoxifying or you know, getting certain things in the diet and so on and so forth. I think that it's really fascinating and we're getting farther and farther along and people are using some of these tools in clinical practice with with great success. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all very fascinating to me. I, I can't let you go without asking your opinion as an epidemiologist on the arguments between organic and conventional produce. Granted, it's very different between the UK and the US. Uh, I think our conventional produce tends to have less pesticides in general. But I wondered what your opinion on that and, and perhaps what you what you talk about with regards to coloring medicine, because we certainly get asked by our, our, our medical students quite a lot about this subject. So do I. So that's actually a part of my, <laughs> this is actually a part of my uh, lecture for them as we get into some of these, these topics. I am uh, very much in favor of organically grown uh, produce uh, for both human health and the health of the planet. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the conversation of whether there's more micronutrients in an organic blueberry versus a conventional is somewhat interesting, but it's, 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 I think, tangential to the, to the bigger thing. I think cumulative, uh, pesticide exposure, uh, I think over a lifetime is, is going to be a problem. It's hard to quantify that. You, you mentioned how, how do you do the long-term st- studies? 
how do you do the long-term studies on this where it's these tiny amounts over a long period of time? Tough to do them, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, I think you look at some of the data that shows that, that conventional uh, produce has more pesticide residue than organic. And, and that to me is, is good enough. And I eat almost exclusively um, organic. But here's the thing, not everyone can afford to do that. So a lot of the patients that we serve and our medical students always talk about that. So I use the, you know, the, the good, better, best type of philosophy and not letting uh, perfect be the enemy of good. So if you've got a patient who's eating, uh, you know, not to, I was going to drop a couple of fast food, but say fast food, you know, fast food. Uh, and then they go to eating canned green beans. That's a good step forward. You know, it doesn't necessarily need to be uh, organic, uh, you know, locally grown and these kinds of, these types of things. Um, but for those who do have the means, I think it, it's good for the health of the, of the planet, you know, uh, uh, among a, our own personal health. Uh, to do that. But I think we try to encourage uh, people to get the, the, uh, the uh, you know, fruits and vegetables where they, where they can, um, if they're really starting out at a, at a lower level. Um, and then same thing to prioritize if they're going to be eating fish and meat to prioritize getting bulk, you know, wild caught salmon or bulk grass fed beef. And then it becomes the price point becomes a little more accessible to people. But yeah, I, I, I'm very much in, in support of, of our, our organic, uh, agriculture and, and uh, uh, animal products when when uh, when available. Yeah, now I feel like high-fiving you uh, virtually right now because it's almost like mirrors exactly how I spiel it as well. Like I, I employ like a precautionary principle when it comes to organic eating for myself because I'm privileged enough to be able to afford it. And I think there are some environmental reasons as well. Um, but uh, also, as with your culinary medicine program, you know, we teach our um, students about food insecurity uh, there's over 4 million people in the UK alone who are reliant on food banks and they won't have the uh, opportunity or the luxury of choosing exactly where their produce comes from. And that transition from fast food to canned vegetables is actually a huge shift, um, which, you know, is something that we have to celebrate every step of the way when we're dealing with patients uh, in, in our healthcare system. So Definitely. I appreciate that. Well, I can give you an <laughs> ring wearing high five virtually because we're all on the same page with that one. But yeah, definitely. And I would point uh, your viewers, if they haven't seen the Environmental Working Group, they've got a nice list, too. Again, when you're making that priority, and I teach the medical students about this, it's the Dirty Dozen Clean 15. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Yeah, yeah I've come across that before. Yeah, it's a nice list. So for those that can't afford uh, organic, you know, exclusively to, to make priorities in certain areas, and largely it's those, that, you know, foods that we don't eat the skin or the, uh, uh, you know, the, the outer covering, you know, are the ones probably where it's most important, but, but the list, it's a good, a good list for people that can be helpful. Environmental Working Group has a lot of good stuff, I think, you know, when it comes to other, you know, we talked about detoxification, sulforaphane, um, but also some of the personal care products that people use. They're just loading themselves up with uh, carcinogens and endocrine disruptors, and they've got good resources on how to minimize those exposures. Yeah, I mean, that's like another podcast in itself. I think I need to speak to someone about um, this new term, clean beauty, um, which sounds quite scary, but I think it's quite an important uh, you know, conversation to have given that there are like something like 3,000 new personal care products every year that come into our system, which don't undergo testing uh, as to, you know, what the long-term environmental impacts are. And these are things that we put on our skin, on our faces, in the most sensitive parts of our body without, you know, giving due diligence to the impact of that over a long period of time. I think it's hugely important. I mean, I, I transitioned, I, I did it very uh, carefully away from using um, aluminum-based uh, antiperspirants. 
you know, and it was because I, I, I would sweat so much before. And I said, how am I going to do this? But I, you know, it's amazing how when you can transition into some of the, the, the better, you know, there's a lot of these, at least in the U.S., these um, they're kind of baking soda, coconut oil and other natural uh, essential oil deodorants. And it's just amazing how much less you sweat with that. So and then you're not getting the aluminum so close to your brain. There's a lot of these things. And you talk about clean beauty, I think that that are really important when it comes to skin products, sh shampoos, fragrances, you know, a lot of this stuff too, people are, are doing themselves, uh, you know, a disservice with a lot of that. It's good to see some awareness coming up about it. Definitely. Yeah. Chris, honestly, this is so lovely to connect with you. Uh, I'd love to, when all this is over, come and visit the kitchen at some point. Uh, I think it'd be brilliant. And um, I'd love to collaborate and stuff going forward as well with our culinary medicine program here in the UK. We'll do a multi-continent collaboration somehow. Yeah, definitely. You're always welcome to come and, and uh, look forward to connecting with you again sometime soon. Brilliant. Thank you, buddy. I hope you really enjoyed that. I think the subject of enhancing antiviral host defense responses through nutritional supplementation is something that is absolutely fascinating. You know, the impact on our innate immune system, which are natural killer cells. Uh, I think it's, it's quite an interesting topic and it definitely needs uh, a lot more attention. Uh, you can find all the information and more at thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast and I will see you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.